the Askell Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton. So, Alma Harris, hello. We're going to talk about your book, which you co-wrote with Michelle S. Jones. Going to ask about her in a second. System Recall, Leading for Equity and Excellence in Education. So, could you just say a little bit about who you are, Alma, and also who Michelle is? Okay. um, I'm Professor Alma Harris. I'm Deputy Head of School at the University of Swansea. And uh, Michelle Jones is the head of the School of Education in Swansea. And we've written quite extensively together on issues of system and school uh, improvement and change. Now, you've written the book, which is called um, Leading for Equity, and I just think we ought to, because it's a word which is used so often, we ought to just be clear what what do we mean when we talk about equity and how is it different from equality? So do you just want to give us a kind of flavour of the distinction in the two words? Yes, and, and that's a very important distinction to make because often those two things are used interchangeably, and they, they, they are, of course, aligned, but they mean distinctively different things. So equality is really the level playing field. Do we all get the same access, the same opportunity? Whereas equity is to do with the structural barriers that uh, some young people face, and they are systemic barriers uh, like poverty, um, like crime, like corruption that exist within society and, and make it more difficult for certain young people to access the educational uh, experiences uh, that, 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 that they want and they deserve. In fact, you, you, your first chapter is about this very theme and you start with a quotation which I'd, I'd never come across, uh, which, which in some ways will reassure people and in some ways will horrify people. It's this Plutarch quotation, uh, an imbalance between rich and poor is the oldest and most fatal ailment of all republics. In other words, that gap between the advantage and disadvantage was round long before our time, was it not? That's right. And I think it's important to recognise that it's it's not something that we just face today, that these issues are, you know, have, have a long history. But in a sense, that doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't address them. And and for me, the issue of poverty uh, is, is, is absolutely key. Uh, some young people, you know, living in poverty right now, have a completely different experience of COVID nineteen and what that's meant for their learning, what that that's meant for them being being isolated, what that's meant for their mental health. So, in many respects, uh, poverty is is a great divider, and even more so in this in this current scenario where we've got a, a pandemic that is means that young people have to rely on technology, and of course. You know, some young people don't have access and we know the digital divide uh, and that's exacerbated by, by poverty. The, the book was written before uh, COVID, even though I know COVID, you know, has dominated everything since, but it doesn't, it doesn't reference COVID and so on. But COVID has, as, as you were implying, shone a spotlight, hasn't it? Do you think it ultimately it's going to have shone, in one sense, a helpful spotlight on issues that people might have been able to kind of turn a blind eye to, such as the digital divide, which I'm I'm not sure is a phrase many of us used a great deal before this year. Do you think it's going to actually prove helpful in taking your thesis and what so many of us believe and actually giving greater urgency to it? Or do we delude ourselves in thinking that good will come out of it like that? I I think it will shine a spotlight on, on issues of disadvantage and the relationship between disadvantage and uh, educational attainment and achievement. And I think we can't hide any longer from from the brutal fact that some young people get a very rough deal when it comes to their educational experience. And that's nothing to do with them. That's to do with 
the structural barriers that surround them and things that are, are not of their choosing and not of their making. So I think COVID-19, in so many ways, actually, uh, has shone a spotlight on the things that we've chosen to to ignore, to sweep under the carpet, to, to, to argue that this is just some children, not many children. And I think it's, it's rarefied this debate around the haves and the have-nots in terms of educational uh, access and opportunity. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I, I like very much about the book and what I remember about your talk at Askell Cymru Conference, which was probably around this time last year, I think it was November last year, is you give us this international perspective. And, I, and you, so you talk about it quite a lot in the book and you do it in a couple of ways. One is what do different cultures think education should be doing you know when when you apply equity so if you talk about finland for example so I want, to, I want to come back to what is it that they believe is important in their education system and then the second thing which you are devastating about is the way in which international measures are then used and create this it's not just that it creates league tables it creates a kind of um, macho race and i'd like to you know race between countries and so on and leads to improbable behaviors so i'd like to just explore both of those so if we're talking in terms of education systems which have at their heart a sense that their purpose is one uh, not to create winners and losers but actually to try and help those people who might be on a, a kind of trajectory to be losers but they see education as something which fundamentally can do something about that where should we be looking if the question makes any sense at all yeah i mean in the book we talk about the importance of context and culture and somehow um, those things are airbrushed out of the debate around inequity and, and, and inequality, and yet they're, they're so profoundly important in their explanation of why some children succeed and other ch- children don't. And one of the things we've looked at internationally is, is the influence of culture and context. And one of the things we see, and, and Finland, of course, is always the example that's given of, of a high-performing country in PISA, and that's important to say, in PISA, um, that has a more egalitarian culture that is premised upon every single school is a good school, every single child deserves a great education. And we've also looked at uh, the Netherlands, and and, and while the Netherlands doesn't feature in the top 10 of PISA, it it features in the top 15 consistently. And again, what you see there is a culture that's premised on equality and equity as the first principle, and then excellence as the second. And I think in the book, that's why uh, we've talked about leading for equity and excellence. So putting excellence second, not not first. And what where that takes you is a, a fundamental rethink of what education is, is for and who education is for. And if you put excellence as the first measure, particularly as a maybe a, a rather narrow measure in terms of narrow forms of achievement, then equity is almost you know some happy byproduct but what we see in the countries that perform well consistently not just on pisa is that equity is the main driver and that leads to excellence and that's a completely different way of thinking about that relationship it's interesting to to hear you say that because some people would assume that if you're talking about equity before you're talking about excellence you are one of the enemies of promise that basically it's it's about making excuses, you know, so because somebody comes from a particularly disadvantaged background. Before you even start talking about excellence, you've got to talk about the, you know, the social stuff, the poverty and so on and so forth. 
and, and that wouldn't be, be a starting point for Finland, you're saying? Well, I think there's something about particularly the Scandinavian countries and the way in which they, you know, they, their, their whole ethos, their, their, their whole uh, raison d'etre is, is about equality and, you know, happiness and, you know, they, 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 their basic premise, uh, well, let's be honest, until, until PISA happened, Finland was happily unaware and blissfully unaware of how well it performed, and, and now it's thrust onto an international stage. But, yeah. you know, the important thing here is that you can't expect equity to follow in, in, the, sort of, in the sort of slipstream of excellence, particularly if you look at America, particular forms of excellence, you know, the, the accountability-driven systems, the one where test scores matters hugely, the ones where, you know differences between uh, young people are not as important as the, as the scores and schools are vilified because they don't perform as well as other schools and they're turned into charter schools. All that works against the principle of equity. And I guess what, you, what I'm saying about Finland is if you, if you start the other way around with the basic principle of equity and, and let that drive your education system, then the outcomes will follow. One of the things I said a long time ago is that, that equity really means success for every child in every setting. And I guess that's, you know, some people would say to me, but that's a, a wild aspiration. We know the effects of poverty and other things. And, I, and we write about that in the book. And the answer is yes. But if you start with that premise and you, you hold that, that line, I suppose, on equity, the chances then of achieving excellence for all are, f- are far higher. There are no easy answers to this problem, otherwise we wouldn't still be talking about it in 2020. But we do see around the world examples of countries where they've got the balance right, and it isn't about equity or excellence, or or excellence at the expense of equity, it's about both. And I think that's what the book fundamentally argues, you know, we have to bring equity back in to any discussions of what an education system is for. But it's also a reminder, just listening to you there, how um, an education system is uh, a mirror of the values of the wider society. So, for example, we're at the moment revisiting something we did four and a half years ago, the blueprint for a self-improving system. And we've come back to it saying, okay, we can see that, let's take the English education system, uh, it it probably works for 70% of children and young people, but it has... Uh, a long toe of a forgotten third. Um, by toe, I don't mean a, a, a physiological toe. Um, but it's got this, you know, this this trailing young people of twelve uh, years who get a grade three, a grade two, or grade one in the English system. And what we're saying is, so what would we need to do in order to improve the system? And we've had a series of round tables. Now, Tim Brighouse's starting point was: if you're going to do something serious about this, you have to start with admissions. Let's just explore that because if schools are a microcosm of a society and society believes that parental choice is important and I should have the choice to choose the school I want to send my child to, that immediately is going to limit the ability of an education system, isn't it, to be able to d- deal with equity? Or is it, Does that sound right? Yes, I mean, in a sense, um, the, the, the best example of this that you can see around the world is is the United States where... You've literally got schools that are sink schools in poor neighbourhoods, largely black, not always, but, but you know, in, 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 in situations of extreme deprivation, 
and no one wants to send their children there. Now, you can, you can see, therefore, how those young people are very quickly the trailing edge that you've just described. And I guess, my, for me, it's, it's, are we comfortable with an education system that by virtue of its structure, by virtue of what we ask it to do, by virtue of the way that we weigh and measure it, uh, acknowledges the fact that we are going to leave 12% of young people behind. And if we're comfortable with that, and if we accept that, then so be it. But quite frankly, I don't accept it. I think an education system is there to, to lift all boats, not just some, to give access and opportunities to those young people with talent who might not have the financial ability or, or, the, or the background to, to succeed um, without education being such a great leveller. And I think that's the, the important point here is what do we want our education system to do? And it isn't a, a sorting and a measuring any longer. It, it's not the grad grind model of education that, you know, Dickens talked about. Surely in, the tw in, in, in this time, we want education and schools to benefit all young people, albeit in different ways. But it shouldn't be premised upon leaving you know, 12%, 15%. Yeah. So we've talked there about in, in, an international context behind. in terms of what is it that those societies through their schools are doing to educate young people. The, the other bit, which isn't a main focus of the book, but you, you are very um, entertaining, actually, in some of the language you use around the PISA test, which you describe as becoming um, an educational beauty contest at one point and how it's created a PISA industry yeah. of predictions and practical advice. Why does PISA appeal to some people so much and why should it appeal to people less, in your view? I think it's appealing in its, in its simplicity and I think therein lies the problem. The idea that you can measure an education system through a few tests every few years with a few young people uh, in different countries... Uh, and, and, and then with a degree of certainty, say how those countries perform relatively, I, I think is very seductive. And I think it's seductive to policymakers in particular because everybody likes a, you know, a very clear indicator, um, a very clear measure. Um, and and, and we're, a bit, we're a bit, I think, seduced by the idea of league tables too and putting countries into into rank order, and, and all that appeals to, I guess, a very simplistic view of what education is and, and making sure that, you know, we're, we're in the top ten seems to be largely the, the impetus for a lot of the policies that we see around the world. But, of course, the reality is very different from that. The reality is that education is, is complex. It's, it's socially, politically, economically driven, and it can't be weighed on measured in very simple and comparative terms. So one of one of the problems I have with PISA is not PISA in its of itself. There are many international assessments that are done in, in many different ways. And I think PISA has probably been the most successful. It's certainly been the most promotional. It's certainly been the one that has shaped education policy. But I think where where PISA goes wrong for me anyway, is where it becomes a driver of the decisions that policymakers make in their own contexts and countries. 
And I think we can learn from other countries. Of course we can. We've, we've always done that. Before PISA, we've got comparative views of the world and education systems. But I think the danger in PISA is it becomes the measure, not a measure. And therefore it becomes all-encompassing and definitive of, of good and bad education. And I think that that's the danger that we use it as a thermometer to test you know, the temperature of our education mm. system without asking some critical questions around the premise of PISA, what it is testing, how it is testing, and whether indeed you can ever really compare very different education systems around the world. Now, people listening to our discussion so far might think that the book you've written here is a theoretical book. And actually, what I like about it is it it maps out all kinds of intellectual territory, but it also talks about what does that mean in terms of leadership? What does it mean in terms of the way you might work with parents and communities? And in particular, what I'd just, just like to talk about is the very strong emphasis you put on um, professional collaboration, um, that that is seen as a driving force. In fact, you quote John Hattie in it saying, um, there is no way that a system will make an overall difference to student achievement by working one teacher at a time. That notion of collaboration is central to it. Do you want to just re- re- reflect on what what is it that makes that so important and what you see as the, the essence of professional learning communities? Yes, you're right. I mean, in a sense, the discussion so far we've had might seem a little sort of theoretical, but the book is, is I mean, Kurt Lewin said there's nothing as practical as a good theory, and I, I think that's what the book aims to do, to be grounded, but also to, to make some practical statements about what schools can do and, and what schools can't do. I mean, that, the book also talks about the limitations of what schools can do, because often schools are asked to do everything uh, to solve society's problems. And it, it, schools can't solve poverty. They, they can't solve, you know, bad parenting. They, they can't solve a whole range of society's problems. So it's, it's about what schools can functionally do to, to help, really, to close this gap. And I talk in the book a little bit about collaboration because, um, you know, in, in many respects, isolation is the enemy of improvement. And we see that so often around the world that, you know, the school working in splendid isolation or the, you know, the, the teacher working in splendid isolation you know, can only do so much. But the, the power of collaboration is such that people can do much more. So I, I think that's the very practical element of this is that, you know, teacher collaboration, professional collaboration, school collaboration, collaboration amongst countries as well uh, can, can help. To, to focus attention on what really works in context. And I, and I talk in the book as well about the limitations of policy borrowing and how, in a sense, I think Andy Hargreaves said that, you know, policy borrowing is, is like trying to transport fruit. Ultimately, when it gets to its destination, it's, it's bad. But <laughs> that's, that's the limitation of trying to borrow the, borrow the policies of Singapore or, you know, other parts of the world. But I, I think what's more helpful, and we say this in the book, is policy learning. In other words, in each country, in each education system right now, there's something that's happening that's really good and very positive. And I, and I guess rather than trying to borrow things from other countries that loosely won't fit, you know, what can we do more of that seems to be having that sort of purchase on educational performance. And I guess collaboration is one of those things. You know, there's, there's a pretty good evidence base around 
and John in his work, of course, cites this, uh, about the power of collaboration within, between, across schools. You know, networks now, we've, we've seen in this current situation the power of networks and networking. You know, we've had to work in a distributed leadership way because that's the nature of the context. So suddenly we're, we're beginning to see collaboration not just as a, a nice thing to do, but an absolutely necessary thing to do. Not only to keep schools running and functioning, but to, to keep us learning and ensuring that uh, that learning is shared. And let's just talk finally, Alma, about leadership, because the book is about uh, leading for, for equity. And you've got a whole section on that. <clears throat> and you essentially one part of, of the chapter about leadership, um, which is a section called Succeeding Against the Odds, map out the kinds of things that... Uh, leaders will do so for example focus on teaching and learning engaging parents and families building the professional learning communities we were just talking about quite quite a lot of leaders at the moment particularly at the moment when everyone is feeling powerless will feel particularly powerless they will feel an agenda is being set not just by other people but uh, by this damn virus but once we get to some kind of normality what what's what, what is it that you've seen that people working perhaps in very challenging circumstances as leaders have been able to do that's woven a kind of magic in terms of the young people in their school and also the culture for teachers working in the school. What, what are the, what's the essence in terms of great leadership? I, I think that, that great leadership and effective leadership uh, is, is irrespective of context. So in other words, the things that good leaders do in, in schools every day uh, are the things that good leaders do in schools in some of the most difficult circumstances. But I think that um, when we talk about leadership for equity, for me, it's about f four things, really. It's about prioritising that within the school above other things. And that's, that's hard to do. But, you know, our, our best leaders in the most success, um, challenging contexts put, put the young person as their main priority. And that's easy to say. But, but sometimes hard, hard to do with everything else that leaders have to do. The second thing is about visibility, S seeing uh, young people. And that, again, that sounds pretty trite, but for some young people in some contexts, um, the, the school is not simply a place that they go. It, it, it is, in many respects, another parent. It, it is another opportunity for them to be seen as an individual. And I think, you know, our, our best leaders in schools and challenging circumstances, all children are visible, all children are important. And I think they're very conscious of, of watching uh, how, how young people behave. Um, the, the third thing is about energy, because to work in a school, any school, to be a leader of any organisation takes considerable energy and, and, and you know, it's, it's relentless, that the, the challenges are relentless. But, you know, the, the, the best leaders have that optimism, that energy, that can-do attitude uh, and never, ever shy away from the mantra of children first. And, and fourthly, it's about commitment, a long-term commitment to the community, to the parents, to the young people who come through the school year on year and, and bring the challenges with them and I think that's the other thing that the book talks about is you know this this school engaging with the community with parents is, is is part of the solution not seeing the community 
or the parents as part of the problem. So those four things, I think, for me stand out. Priority, visibility, energy, and, and a deep commitment to all learners, whatever they bring. I love all of that, partly because of the optimism, and heaven knows we're all craving optimism, but also because of there's, there's a kind of deep sense of humanity about it. It isn't about mechanisms and systems. The mechanisms and systems will be important at some point for some things, but it is about people working uh, at, even on behalf of some of the most challenging youngsters, you know, who would who would more easily be moved to the margins, as it were. Yes, and and I think you know, at the end of the book, we 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 quote a very special colleague, uh, Sam Stringfield, who talks about equity as being a moral imperative, and I I think really at the heart of of leaders who lead with equity in mind is a deep. Uh, moral imperative to do the absolute best they can for all the young people who come through their doors. Yes, I, I really like that. Without wanting to spoil the, the punchline, you, 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 you do. You, you quote Sam Stringfield, the cost of educational failure has become too expensive. We cannot just sit on the sidelines anymore. Equity is a moral imperative. And then your final sentence with Michelle, now is the time to step off the sidelines. It's, ter- it's terrific. And, the, you know, that optimism is ex- exuded. Um, Alma, when when we put on Twitter that we were going to have this conversation, what was striking is the number of people said, who said, really looking forward to it because I love the book. And I, I'm the same. I, I, I found the book, having read so many education books you know, through my career, I found the book so absorbing uh, and learned so much from it. And you've got a gift for finding some fantastic quotations as well. Um, so thank you so much for talking it through now uh, and, for, and for writing the book with Michelle. Well thank you for the opportunity to talk about it and um, I, I, I hope in a way uh, it encourages more people to get off the sidelines. Professor Alma Harris thank you very much indeed. Thank you. The Ask All Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton.